Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, Director of Content at Steinway & Sons and Editor-in-Chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Christian Benitez, whose album Latin American Classics was released on the Steinway & Sons label. Christian, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you, Ben. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm so thrilled. I'd like to talk about your album for the Steinway & Sons label, Latin American Classics. This is music from Cuba, Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, and Mexico. What I love about this album, and the reason I want more people to get to know it, is that Latin American Classics, as a term, as an album, it's a very expansive sound and aesthetic. Yes. I think sometimes we get this idea of Latin American music as like Malagueña filtered through Cielito Lindo, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And there's so much more there. There's so much more. I'd like to explore that sound world and on this album, what these tracks have in common and where their composers are coming from. Maybe you could tell me a little bit first about the creation process behind this curation. The whole project started because of Ginastera's Danzas Criollas, Ginastera composer from Argentina. That piece is actually very dear to me. And also he wrote that, that piece when he was living in New York. He was a Guggenheim scholar at the time. It was the first time that he decided to merge both cultures, North American culture with Argentinian culture, and then also he started expanding his language. So that was the piece that set up before and after for Hinastera, where he started. First of all, he added clusters to his music, which was the first time that he was doing that. Tell our listeners what you mean by clusters. So clusters is a bunch of notes that, that you play in the piano using your the palm of, of your hand. Sometimes you can use your forearm and you press as many keys as possible. So there was a very modern, contemporary way, very even like avant-garde, you know, to play the piano. Like tone clusters and classical, we call it, right? Yeah. So like almost like banging, you know, like mm -hmm. just like a bunch of, of notes. And then that was the first time that he he wrote, like play as many notes as possible from an F up to a G, you know, and then you press as many notes as possible, and then you follow a, a rhythm. What's the effect of that, of using these clusters? Well, it's a very rustic sound, you know. You get these mixtures of dissonance, you know. Sometimes people think that dissonances are, you know, series of sounds that's, that doesn't really sound as beautiful as possible, but then it creates an effect, so he's treating the piano both ways, you know, as a lyrical instrument and also as a percussive instrument doing this type of effect. Following also a, like a left hand line, which has a lot of tonal harmony, even like talking about bitonality, like Bartok kind of way.
then from that time, he started experiencing with tonality as well. Time signature, tonality, piano effects. And it was a really good mixture between what he was coming from, which, which was like exposing Argentinian culture with the new avant-garde experience that he was living in New York. So starting with that piece, I think it was very iconic for the whole set because it was set in New York. And then we started recording it, of course, here in New York. And then from there, as you say, it's expansive. Like you have a lot of different types of Latin American music composers and the different um, influences. The main point of writing classical music, I, I would say, like for a lot of composers like Beethoven, Brands was like they took folk music and they turned it into this huge, amazing, epic classical pieces, right? So the same thing was happening in Latin America. Not the problem, but I would say like the difference was that we are the new world. Latin America or America, you know, was the new world. So the way people sometimes felt about those folk music was something like, oh, it's festive is we're going to dance to it, which is true. Like, part of it is true. But then you have, like, Asian cultures, like Mayans, like Aztecs, you know, like, that also explore uh, sound in a very different way. So you, you, you get uh, composers, for example, like Carlos Chavez in Mexico, where he was essentially being influenced by the rituals of the Aztecs and Mayans. And, and, you know, so the sound is very, is very different from, for example, in the same country, you have Cielito Lindo, which is, you know, like a more tonal. A mariachi favorite. <laughs> exactly. Which is, I mean, it is amazing. Sure. <laughs> Regresa y ya no encuentra Cielito lindo, el bien perdido So within that range, you have everything in between. So you have, of course... First of all, South America, even within South America, there's so many different, I mean, starting with landscapes, the same way, for example, Debussy was composing inspired by a landscape, by a painting, you know, um, the same way Latin American composers did. And some of those composers were even like friends of Debussy, Ravel, and, and, and before, right? I think that's great that you mentioned Debussy because when I hear your Federico Ruiz's pieces for children under 100 years of age, Magic Dream on this album, it strikes me as somewhere between French Impressionism mm -hmm. and a Thelonious Monk ballad. There's such a beautiful aesthetic and a very complex one as well. Yes, definitely. There's a there's a lot of influence. I would say like a French influence uh, within the Venezuelan composers' uh, style.
A lot of the Venezuelan composers went to study in, in, in Paris. Mm-hmm. The most famous one, which actually stayed uh, there, was Reynaldo Hahn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think from there, we have a, a lot of influence. I mean, we as Venezuelans, but especially like composers, where they started like mixing and like experiment with effect, with color, with landscape. Venezuela is a relatively small country. Of course, comparison to the U.S. or Brazil or India, but we have six different types of landscapes within the same country. We have the Amazon, we have the coast, we have the Andes. So all of those differences, you know, you you need a way to express it. So like musically, you know, music-wise, being inspired by something like the Impressionism was logic. It makes sense for them. Uh, and then on on the other hand, you have the folk part. All of these uh, rhythms, like we have like merengue, like Venezuelan merengue, joropo, which joropo was actually a consequence of Spanish fandango, Spanish heritage into it. So everything was transforming there. And in every different country, for example, Venezuela and Colombia are the only one that they, they share joropo in a very different way. But then you get like every different country have their own typical rhythm or different rhythms you know it's not only one talking specifically about joropo which is like the fandango descendant in venezuela there are more more than 80 different types of joropo and the difference are minimal but they're depending on the on the like even on a little town different region it changes like even that even with that you get a lot of variety talk about you know you know latin american music for hours and hours <laughs> or days <laughs> but that's great and I, I think that that was kind of my point that i was hoping you would make to listeners is that there's so much here there are so many influences so many styles so many aesthetics and they often come together in very beautiful and surprising ways another is uh, adios a cuba by ignacio cervantes which is this really quiet gem that has some classical formalism with a Cuban flavor, a bit like a slow piece by Chopin. Exactly. But there's almost a touch of Joplin here. That's kind of what I love is there's modernism in this music that comes as a delightful surprise. Specifically for Adiós a Cuba, it was a moment for the composer specifically where he had to uh, leave the country for political reasons. So he was living in in Spain at the time. So, of course, like you think about like nostalgia, you know, you think about feelings. When you think about music, classical music, and you think about feelings and you think about piano, you automatically go to Chopin, right? <laughs> you do, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like the same process that Chopin kind of like experienced when he was, for example, in Mallorca, and was missing Poland, you know, when he was doing like his Polonaises, you know, like a lot of his Polonaises that he was, you know, in the middle of, you know, in Mallorca in front of a beautiful sea. But at the same time, you're in the most beautiful place in the world, but you still miss, you know, your roots. 
So it doesn't really matter where you are. So the same thing happened with Cervantes here. He was in Spain. He was fine. He was everything was great. But that feeling, that depth, that sadness, you know, of missing his roots. So that's the process there. So it's very similar to Chopin. But of course, when you think about Cuba, then you get these three very distinctive cultures that mix, you know, like you have the African culture, you have the European, and then you have the actual, like the indigenous from like the native, you know. So all of these cultures mixed create this beauty and then of course uh when you think and, and you say like it, it got a little of, of, of joplin well when you think about it like in america in general like all three like north america C- central america south america we have that mixture we are we are a result of a mixture yes we are which i think is the most beautiful thing and then when you see that in music it's wonderful i mean don't don't get me wrong I mean, i love i adore beethoven i adore you know like the the main i don't know bruckner wagner i mean I, i'm obsessed with that music but also um it's it's beautiful when you see a little bit of different cultures mix into one language because it turns into like a one very uh original thing it's not like uh oh i take a little bit of Debussy, a little bit of beethoven and then i turn into right i mean the the process could be that right but at the end it's its own language its yeah. own thing let's not discount the originality exactly. in this music for sure yeah you mentioned Beethoven because I listened to your Les Adieux Sonata, which was on a previous album. Yes. So yeah, you know what you're talking about with this guy. How, <laughs> As a performer, how are the priorities and approach different if you're sitting down to play a Beethoven Sonata or if you're sitting down to play a Castellanos or, or a Ruiz? Are there different priorities? Do the priorities stay the same? Is the approach different? Does it stay the same? It depends. For me, sometimes when I'm, you know, when I'm presenting, because I'm t- what, what I'm trying to do uh, on a recital, when I have the chance, of course, is to present music from a region, you know, from Latin America. And when you present music from Latin America, even like the pressure is higher because you don't, you don't want people to take it for granted. You know, you want to show something and you want to, you have the responsibility. You're kind of like an ambassador at that time, you know, at that moment. 
like, okay, this is music from Brazil or Argentina or Venezuela. And then I'm presenting that. And this is not just like little, little things. This is uh, something. And, and, and I, I always try to talk a little bit and explain why am I choosing this piece? Where are these pieces coming from? When you play Beethoven or you play Schumann, uh, of course, there's a there's huge responsibility. But people sometimes they have their own vision of that piece, you know. So I'm presenting my vision of let's say Les Adieux, or I'm mm. presenting my vision of Schumann Carnival, which you know, it takes a lot of you know. Gods, I will say. I remember when I play, when I record that album with Les Adieux, I recorded it in Germany, actually in Berlin. And I was playing a, a concert there where I also performed the Beethoven Second Piano Concerto. And for me, it was a huge responsibility because I'm playing Beethoven in Germany. And <laughs> right. as you know, like everybody in Germany knows who Beethoven is. And like, even if they're not musicians, they know, they understand, like there's a cultural background there. So it's a huge responsibility like from a Latin American guy to play Beethoven in Germany. But also if I'm playing Ruiz or Castellanos or Villalobos like there as well because I'm presenting something to them that listen this is new this is serious this is beautiful as well. Let's just like open up a little more because music is infinite. You feel a responsibility because you're Venezuelan. Like your identity is coming with you. Yeah. And how fair is that? Like, if you're playing behind a screen, when I listened to your Beethoven, I wasn't like, oh, okay, the way he plays those trills, I know he must roll his R's really well. Like, this guy's clearly <laughs> Latino, you know? <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I like the R, the rolling R. Yeah. But I mean, ultimately, isn't that a bit unfair? Well, yeah, but like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think like, well, first of all, everybody's allowed to roll their R's. Like we have the talent for that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, we can all learn. Yeah, you, you, you just need to practice. So that's what we do when we play piano, you know? We we have to practice. Like when we want to be a musician, we want to we wanna be better at rolling R's. But it's the same thing like, you know, you, um, I don't know, you go to a concert of a, for, let's say a German pianist playing Schumann and then you, you expect, you know, to be the best German way possible, if you want to call it something. But at the same time, if you're going to listen to the same thing, you're like, oh, okay, so this guy or this girl is playing playing it, you know, the German way. So what is that? The German way is being also like changing so much. You know, so of course, like there's a tradition there, but like the tradition also has been like evolving. So there's a lot of things involved. I mean, I don't think there's a disadvantage in it. On the contrary, I mean, and you can kind of like put a different like flavor within your own culture, within your own, you know, country's composer piece. You know, I think it's, it's, it's relative. Well, it's like music. What do you like? What do you don't like? What do you think about this and that? And everything I think is valid. That's the beauty of it. Sometimes when I go to a concert or when I play a concert, I don't want to repeat myself or I don't want to listen to the same thing, you know, even if I'm listening to the same piece, because we're constantly evolving. So we need that variety in the, in the way we play. And if you think about it, the way that, I don't know, Rubinstein played Beethoven Emperor or Richter is different right now from what Kissing or 
Trifonov or Yuya are, are doing, you know? And for me, that's, that's beautiful because if we keep listening the same way, it starts to be boring. Like what's going on with the creativity, you know, what's, what, what's happening because we are performers. Yes, of course, but we're also creators within the music that is written. You're conscious of being in this tradition, but of also of the need to bring something new and say something new. Yeah. And I, I think it should be tasteful, though. I mean, my process, for example, if I'm approaching, I don't know, Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, which, of course, is like iconic and everybody wants to play it their own way, or Chopin's first ballad, for example. Everybody have their own vision of it. Um, I... I kind of like, I learned the basic, I know, you know, like I go to the root, I go to the style, I go there. I need to like absorb that. But then within that, there's room to give your own personal signature to it. I'm not saying that you're going to change the rhythm or you're going to, you know, I don't know, change the piece because that's a different thing. I mean, you can do a remix of a pit if, if you want, but that's a, that's a different thing. But you, I think you have to go to like the root. You have to know kind of like, okay, so this, these are the rules, if you want to call it. I don't like that word, but sure, you have to be in style, yes. But then there's a, you know, you have to be in style when you're in college. You have to be in style to learn the basic because at some point you're going to be a teacher and you're going to teach that. And it's important. But at the same time, you have to teach to be your own person and give your personal signature within this, those frames. And you know what? Sometimes if you're playing a concert and you decide, you know what? I want to really go like out of style here. Why not? Let me just give it a try. Why not? There's no like rules for that. Of course. I mean, I don't know if people are going to take it nicely or not, but I think taking risk is, is important. Yeah. So speaking of teaching, you grew up as a part of El Sistema, which for those of us who do know it, we know it. Perhaps because this was the same program that uh, Venezuelan conductor Gustavo Dudamel was involved in. El Sistema is a publicly financed music education program founded in Venezuela in 1975 by Jose Antonio Abreu. Yes. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what is El Sistema and what did it do for you musically? If you want to be a, a pianist, then, you know, like, you're not necessarily going to be part of El Sistema, you know, like, like, piano is not necessarily part of El Sistema. I grew up with El Sistema, like, parallel to El Sistema. And I met Jose Antonio Abreu, the, the, the founder, uh, since I was five years old. So, like, all my life. Growing up in a country where, first of all, a country which is completely full of immigrants, we're completely mixed, you know. Uh, we have one particular like element i would say that really got me the first time i got you know i i went to college to the to, to the u.s because for us you can be like i mean we're all mixed we have french spanish german Lebanese. like we have a mixture of everything but at this at the end we just say like oh i'm from venezuela and that's it you know so you're coming from a country where you say oh i'm from venezuela when you are in the states they always confuse Venezuela because of our accent with Minnesota, which is, <laughs> which is actually really, 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 really funny because I've been to Minnesota and it's nothing like Venezuela. Sure. It's very cold during the winter. 
And then they say, oh, so you're from Venezuela. And they think, you know, that, you know, do you have internet? Do you have TV? You know, things like that. Do you have shoes? Exactly. You know, and it's, it is, it is very, it is very funny. It just, you know, make me laugh. In a country that people think or had that, you know, thoughts before. Now you found this, El Sistema, where you have more than 350 youth orchestras throughout the whole country, which is insane. And they, and they all can play very well. It's, it's really, I don't know, like I feel like I'm in a, like in a Dali painting sometimes, you know, when I think about that. It's completely surreal. I grew up seeing all these kids who some of them become, be, be, became my, my friends. You know, we grew up together. And of course, the piano was always the soloist of the orchestra. So I was playing with them since I was seven years old. Imagine this, like, this is like a pianist, you know, dream come true. You're in a country, you have 350 orchestra that you can practice your concerto repertoire with. Like even, you know, uh, oh, let's just do a rehearsal. <laughs> okay, can you just side read this piano concerto and then you have a full orchestra? It's insane. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you have this really high quality. And then what really gets me every time, and even like today, is that they really do it out of love. You know, it's, 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 it's from the deepest love possible. They take that, those violins or flutes and they play with everything they got. And sometimes they don't even have anything to eat, you know, uh, but they don't care. They just cherish that instrument and that music. And it's so sacred and it's so holy for them. Of course, right now, you know, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, wow, this is a huge thing. You know, this is a kind of like a miracle sometimes. I mean, if you, if you want to call it something, but me growing up there was normal. I was like, oh, okay. So we have this orchestra. Okay, great. You know, it's like, we have it right there. I remember when I was studying here in the States, uh, doing my bachelor's, I was telling people like, oh yeah, I play this concerto and this concerto, you know, like for me it was so normal. And people were like, this is, this is weird. You know, like we haven't like. <laughs> right. Where did you find the players when you were 15 uh, to uh, do that? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you, when you graduate from uh, the conservatory in Venezuela, you, you play a concert with orchestra. That's like normal. That's main, you know, it's like, of course. And then you go to our concerts. I'm like, I don't know. I've been playing piano for 30 years and I've never played with an orchestra ever in my life. So to have that experience, it was such a blessing. And also, you know, the opportunity, the way, the time I, I grew up and having that experience gave me a lot and gave me a lot of also, you know, respect for my former teacher back in Venezuela, Olga Lopez. She was a really, really close to Maestro Abreu. And for both of them, you know, music was something holy, you know, that's kind of like your religion in a way. So you have to be so respectful and loving it so much to the extreme. You know, it's like you go all the way. Like you have like love. I mean, if love has a, a limit, then you, you cross that limit. And that's how you approach an instrument. That has a really good thing, which is like there's no fear for risk. You know, you, you, you take risk, you go all, all the way. Sometimes it sounds good. Sometimes it doesn't sound as good, but you go for it. The downside of that is sometimes it's too much. I'm grateful and I'm and I'm and I've been lucky, you know, that I I started abroad 
in the U.S. and, and Germany and, and France that they used to call me a, a wild horse, my teachers. They're like, this is too much. You know, we have to kind of like find a middle ground. And then some people will say like, why do I have to like limit you? And, you know, as I said before, it's always good to know the roots first. And then once you know these are the things, it works this way, then you decide how you're going to manage that wildness. And that was for me really like amazing and a discovery, you know, also for the way that I was playing piano. You had classical roots and then you expanded into this Latin American world of music. Yeah. While I was growing up in the, in the music school, in the conservatory, every uh, year you have to prepare a 60-minute program, like since you were like six. The way they structure the program where like you have to play a piece from the Baroque, classical sonata, then you play a romantic uh, piece. So you have to play one piece from the Impressionistic era. So it was like either like Debussy or Ravel, that's it. Then you have the modern, which is kind of like, they even include like Prokofiev, Rachmaninoff even there. And then 20th century music sometimes, but then always you have to play Latin American piece and a Venezuelan piece every year. So I grew up with that. And then, of course, you took those pieces as very serious pieces of, of the program. And I think that's, that's why it's, it's part of my DNA right now. You think more about the structure, how you want to structure your uh, program, how you want to structure a recital. And I always want to include that Latin part because that's part of me. That's part of who I am as an artist, as a person, as a human being, as a pianist. And it should be there. I mean, I think it's the same thing. Like, you know, sometimes you find your perfect composer. You know, you have to know your limits as well. You learn everything while you're in college, but then at some point you're like, okay, I think I'm, you know, good playing Smetana but I'm not as good playing Couperin. So I'm not going to play that. I'm just going to, you know. But for me, it's been always like so natural to, I need to add something Latin to it. I'm always finding new new pieces, you know, not necessarily like the old ones, but I, I use everything I can. And of course, there are new composers, that's in every country, but there are a lot of pieces specifically. And that's one of the things that I love about Latin American classic that we're doing is that we're bringing back all of those pieces that right now they're unknown for a lot of people. Which is great. Yeah. Gracias por su música y su tiempo y mucha suerte. Gracias, Ben. Thank you so much for this. Listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard a clip from Celito Lindo, performed by Pedro Vargas from the album Veinte Exitos Originales. And we heard Christian Benitez performing the second movement of Suite de Danzas Criollas by Alberto Ginestera, Magic Dream from Federico Ruiz's piece for children under 100 years of age, Diana Franklin's Europo, and Adios a Cuba by Ignacio Cervantes. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>